Cloud Atlas is brought to you by Cloud Zero, the cost intelligence platform that offers advanced visibility and optimization for your entire cloud environment. Eliminate wasteful spending, ship efficient code, and innovate profitably all in one platform. Part 2 Death to the Monolith. So, in episode one, we looked at the business pressures that necessitated something like the cloud. In this episode, we'll look at the technological innovations that made it possible, and which amounted to a total reconfiguration of how web applications were built. In the first 10 years of Amazon, we had entangled a bunch of pieces of our platform that we wished we had. Amazon was founded in 1994. The first 10 years of Amazon were almost the first 10 years of the internet itself, thus the first 10 years of website construction as we know it. When people started building the very first websites in the world and nobody really knew what they were doing and the technology was really horrible. That's Cloud Zero's co-founder and CTO, Eric Peterson. He's talking about the wild, wild west days of the World Wide Web, when the first web designers were trying to use the internet to sell stuff. And like any first-timers, they made some big mistakes, which are easy to see in hindsight, but which were impossible to see in the moment. You know, think about it. There is no senior engineers. There are no, you know, web developers for this stuff. They're, people are just making this stuff up on the fly, trying to figure it out. The idea was, all right, well, I've built some functionality, I'll share it with the world, and then as we need to build more functionality, I'll build more functionality on top of that, and then I'll build more functionality on top of that. And it became this pattern that everyone lovingly called the monolith, which was just a huge, giant application that services all the needs of the customer or customers. Eric's talking about one of the most integral and to the untrained ear, most trivial sounding events in software engineering history, the transition from monolith to microservice architecture. Again, this is part of why more people don't understand the cloud. It, it takes software engineering expertise to understand the terms themselves, let alone the innovation events that they're a part of. But the point is this, monolith to microservices is why we can put a ride-sharing app or a photo-posting app or a video-streaming app in our pocket. Here's why. Monolith architecture is incredibly limited. Let's go back to the metaphor of building a house. So imagine if when you built a house, every single part depended on every single other part. And if one failed, the whole house failed. The kitchen sink depended on the bathroom toilet. The living room light switches depended on the HVAC unit. The storage closet depended on the garage door, and so on and so on and so on. In practical terms, if you ever wanted to replace something, like an old leaky pipe, you'd risk bringing the whole house down, every time. Plus, at the time, every company in the world was building their own monolith. So unlike today, where we can integrate Slack and Zoom and Google Calendars, Figma and Atlassian and Salesforce, monoliths could only operate on their own. They couldn't communicate. And as Michael Scott told us, the cloud would fix all of that. There are, there are three things going on there. Number one is the cloud is connecting everybody. Number two is it's connecting everything, meaning all the applications. And finally, the third thing is it's enabled people in, in real time to actually collaborate within the document on the process that they're working on. What you've got to remember is you go back to the world of the data centers. Every data center was built like a snowflake, you know, with individual services and capabilities, and there was no commonality between them. And so I remember in the late 80s, as an entrepreneur trying to solve something for British Telecom, which was in their customer services center, they wanted to be able to take faxes in and actually 
automate the OCRing of those faxes so they could break down what problems needed to be solved and give them to the right people in the, in the help center to be able to then get more organized with it. That was seven different applications. I mean, it was just unbelievable how difficult it was to integrate those things. It was a nightmare. Multi-million dollar project, by the way, so we were all thrilled, but the reality was, what a pain to deliver it. And virtually impossible. So circa 2000, the entanglement issue of software development made individual monoliths cumbersome, and it prevented separate monoliths from communicating. Now, getting back to Amazon's specific goals, whenever they wanted to add another feature, they had to be sure that it was configured to the exact specifications of their monolith, or it could crash the entire platform. I think for the semi-technical or for the sort of more technical audience, the classic problem teams have is that they share a database, right, which is just an absolute disaster because some team wants to change the schema to add a column that represents some new idea because they're building a feature, they're building gift cards or something, and they want to tag users as having a gift card. But if they change the schema, it's going to break every other team's software that's using that same database. In monolith configuration, giving someone a gift card the wrong way could make it impossible to actually buy anything with that gift card, or, you know, use Amazon at all. So the first thing companies like Amazon did was break their monolithic platforms apart into microservices. What we actually did is, okay, we need projects where we can take these databases and break them apart so every team can have their own database. And yeah, I know it's going to cost more and there's going to be inefficiencies there and Oracle's going to charge us more licenses because that's what they do, um, but we have to do it. Think of it like a building's brick wall. Each brick is a microservice within the overarching software platform and they could add, remove, or replace bricks in the wall whenever they wanted. In between the bricks, holding them all together and helping them communicate was a new connective tissue called APIs. That's short for Application Programming Interface, and all you need to know about APIs is their rules for how different parts of a platform interact. But, but still, microservice architecture had its limitations. You know, IBM and HP and all these companies in the early 2000s were leading the charge with like building distributed service-oriented architectures and all this other great stuff. But the best that they could come up with was, you know, just buy more or sun, you know, just buy more of our hardware and just build a build your distributed systems on top of a monolithic hardware platform. <laughs> in other words, while the software had evolved to a microservice model, the hardware hadn't. Companies were still powering their software with their own monolithic hardware. To understand the issue there, imagine if in order to use electricity in your home, you first needed to build your own power plant. And so did your neighbor, and so did everyone else in your neighborhood, and so did everyone anywhere who wanted to watch Love Island or charge their phone. It, it could happen, but it would be incredibly hard, incredibly slow, and incredibly expensive. And for pre-cloud software engineers, that's how life was. If you wanted to run a software product, you had to build it and run it on your own physical servers. A server was that big bulky thing you used to have under your desk with the fan and the disk drive and everything. The computer's engine, basically. You remember how we used to buy CDs for software like AOL and Microsoft? We would install them on our own servers and run them with our own computing power whenever we opened them. For the world's largest businesses, imagine that dynamic, but multiplied by a million, 10 million, 100 million. As Michael Scott learned, if a company like Deutsche Bank wanted to deploy a new software solution, they'd first have to spend an outrageous amount of money and time buying and configuring new servers. And Michael faced this exact scenario when he was CEO of Alphablox, a software company he founded in 1996. So uh, one of my big customers was Deutsche Bank. I think we, we took down a $33 million partnership with them at one stage for them to use Alphablox to do this real-time inline analytics to 
at literally look at risk before they made a trade, which is pretty fundamental. So it made a huge amount of sense then because they could put, you know, not not an exaggeration, billions of dollars at risk. Um, and this is back in the late 90s, so God knows what it would be today. But the point is that it's a great idea, it's a great concept, but before they could even put our application into practice, they'd have to spend triple that amount with IBM, another partner of ours who ended up buying us actually, on the infrastructure to get our solution into place. So it's like, you know, well, it's great that you've got this fantastic application, but we can't run it on anything until we spend, you know, another 100 million on the rest of the infrastructure. And Michael wasn't the only one. Joe Kinsella, a software engineer who would later become a cloud entrepreneur, had faced a similar issue. I would engage in annual planning where I would sit down with my finance team. I would sit down with my operations team. I would propose a multi-million dollar capital expenditure for physical infrastructure that I wanted to put in data centers to support my applications for the course of a year. We would discuss it. We would agree to it. We would then over the next several months purchase and provision and deploy all of this hardware infrastructure. And we did this all under the hope that during the year I might achieve the peak volume at some point in time that I needed for my software application, which to be perfectly honest, almost never was achieved by I'm sure me and almost anyone else. And so it, it was very inefficient, you know, heavyweight, bureaucratic, capital intensive approach to actually bringing your software to market. For these software engineers, it took an enormous amount of time and money just to get the engines that they'd need to build and run their software. And months and months later, who knew if their ideas would still be viable? Who knew if there would be a better solution that would make those servers irrelevant? Microservices addressed one part of the problem. They let developers work quickly without worrying that they'd destroy the whole company, which is great. But without addressing the hardware problem, their speed and the company's overall time to market were still limited by the time it took to buy and configure physical servers. Now, what if instead of buying physical servers, they could buy virtual servers, which they could configure in a heartbeat and that somebody else would run? And what if, to go with those physical servers, they had access to a Home Depot-like repository of infrastructure that they could buy and deploy in seconds? To go back to our building metaphor, it would be like if instead of building a building from the ground up, you could copy and paste parts of other buildings you liked to build your own. If you don't want to spend time digging a foundation for your own home, copy and paste a foundation from your neighbor's home. If you don't want to hire a team to build custom walls and doors, just copy and paste them from a home you saw in Architectural Digest. If you could copy and paste elements from other homes, you could literally build a home in minutes, or a cafe, or an apartment building, or a sports arena, or a skyscraper. Imagine how convenient that would be. Imagine how many other builders would want that tool. And for the sellers of that tool, imagine how much money they could make. The first step, getting those buildings electricity. The death of the monolith obliterated some key software engineering obstacles, but it would take much more to create the cloud, including millions of dollars of capital investment, a major bet on the Amazonian vision of the future. Cloud Atlas is written, hosted, and produced by me, Dustin Lohman, with invaluable assistance from Natalie Jones, Greg Barrett, and many others at Cloud Zero. Credit also to Tim O'Keefe, our sound designer, composer, and associate producer. He made all those pretty sounds you hear in the background. 
Thank you to Eric Peterson, Michael Scott, Alan Vermeulen, and Joe Kinsella for their contributions to this episode, to Cloud Zero for trusting me to turn Cloud Atlas into a reality, and of course, to you for listening. Until next time, this is Dustin Lohman reminding you to keep your feet on the ground and your head in the cloud. <laughs> <laughs>